I'm Lexi with New Unoya's Chirpcast, a podcast where we talk about the good and the bad, as well as the ins and outs of mental health. Today's podcast is Trepanation to Therapy, Humanity's Timeline of Mental Health Treatment. I'd like to preface that in this episode, we talk about many cruel treatments throughout history, such as trepanation and lobotomies, and discuss topics like eugenics and ECT. If you believe that any of these topics may be detrimental to your well-being, please feel free to turn off this episode and go take care of yourself. Throughout human history, mental illnesses have had many names. Hysteria, shell shock, psychosis, curses, and sorcery. In our early history, and even in some places still today, mental illness was considered to be demonic possession. Starting as early as 950 BCE, a practice called trephination was used to treat mental illnesses all over the world, from Mesoamerica to Europe to Asia. Also called trepanning or burr holing, trepanation is a surgical intervention where a hole is drilled, incised, or scraped into the skull using simple surgical tools. A piece of the bone would be removed from the skull, exposing the dura matter. The first case of trepanation was during the Neolithic period. As gruesome as the operation sounds, many skulls show signs of having healed years past the hole being bored some even having had a second trepanation later in life. However, some also show signs of the operation being abandoned partway through, as the trepanation was shown to be incomplete. Some theories for how trepanation came about and how it is so widespread is doctors recognize that if a patient had a traumatic brain injury and a hole was caused, symptoms such as swelling would decrease and the patient would tend to live longer. Thus, they tested it out on many other illnesses and ailments. Another follows the demonic possession line. They believe that drilling a hole would allow the demon or evil spirit to leave the body. In the 5th to 3rd centuries BCE, Hippocrates, an ancient physician known to many as the father of medicine, suggested that the body had four humors, vital bodily fluids, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. In his proposition, an excess or deficiency of any of these humors could be a sign of illness. Following his theory, a person with too much black bile would be melancholic or depressed while someone with too much blood or yellow bile would be considered manic. Balancing these humors was used up until the 18th century, ending at the beginning of the Middle Ages when many people turned back to superstition, up until the Enlightenment in the 17th century. To draw out different humors, doctors would prescribe the opposite humors production. For example, black bile is considered cold and dry, while its opposite, blood, is hot and moist. If someone was melancholic due to an excess of black bile, a doctor would suggest bloodletting through leeches, a small hole in the forehead, or by tapping the veins along the body. By the 8th century, the world's first mental hospital had come to life in Baghdad. Here, patients were treated fairly humanely, a stark difference from many asylums closer to our modern history. Going into that, if someone acted up in public and was deemed insane, they were imprisoned or put in a dungeon, or, typically, and the worst option, an asylum. For example, in the 15th century up until the 21st century, many asylums prioritized profit over their patients. One of the most famous asylums, which opened up as an asylum for the mentally ill in England in the 16th century, was St. Mary of Bethlehem, also known as Bedlam. Patients were regularly reported to be in chains and stockades, and put on show for the general public as entertainment for about 10 shillings a show. The terrible conditions served two purposes. One was to draw more viewers, which meant more money, and another, according to the asylum, was to serve as a deterrent. If you saw how bad these conditions were, you wouldn't want to be in the mental institution. Mentally ill patients were seen more as animals than as people, and therefore were treated as such. They were given insufficient meals, cold baths, bleeding, blistering, and drugs to make them excrete or vomit the humors. These practices, bar the showings of the patients, continued. Another practice, as during this time mental illness was seen as demonic possession or upsetting God, people would pay the corrupt church for their salvation, 
or flog themselves in atonement. In 1772, the infamous straitjacket was first recorded. As people began to realize chain and rope restraints were cruel, the straitjacket became the solution. A shirt with extremely long sleeves would be wrapped around the patient and tied, sewn, or buckled together to prevent escape. This was to restrain the patient from breaking objects and hurting themselves or others. Working towards the more modern and acceptable treatments, 1895 brings us to Sigmund Freud and his talking cure, also known as psychoanalysis. This is the birth of the patient on the couch, therapist in the chair with a notepad method of treatment we know very well. Freud would have a patient delve into their unconscious through dream interpretation and free association. Although it's not scientifically proven to be linked, you can use websites such as Dream Moods to interpret your dreams. For example, seeing a tadpole may suggest that you haven't fully reached your potential yet. As for free association, the therapist would instruct the patient to speak anything on their mind without stopping or correcting themselves as a way to gain insight into their most authentic mind, which is the therapy we still use today. By the 1900s, new methods of treatment were introduced as we further recognized the link between mental illness and the brain. Between 1927 and the 1960s, large doses of insulin would regularly be injected into patients, particularly those with schizophrenia, to put them into daily comas over the course of several weeks. This came as Austrian-American psychiatrist Manfred Sackel used small doses of insulin to treat drug addicts, and once one accidentally slipped into a coma and woke up claiming to have found clarity in his mental well-being, Sackel believed insulin coma therapy may work for mental illnesses as well. Before and during the coma, many patients would experience seizures, which some psychiatrists brushed off as being therapeutic. The success rate of insulin coma therapy is claimed to be around 80%, but today it's believed to be significantly less as there was no follow-up on many patients to see if they were fully recovered and rehabilitated. As we began to understand the brain more, some doctors took up lobotomies as a way to treat patients. In this procedure, a doctor would take an item such as an ice pick through the eye sockets without anesthesia in its early development or actual surgical equipment towards its end to cut the nerve to the frontal lobe, which regulates emotion, while supposedly leaving the rest of the patient's mind fully functional. About 40,000 lobotomies were performed in the United States alone. Even the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy's sister, Rosemary, underwent a lobotomy in 1941. However, this left her incapacitated and institutionalized for the rest of her life. This was the usual outcome for lobotomized patients. The patient's independence, personality, and intelligence were often sacrificed to relieve them, though mostly their family, of their mental illness. Another option, used more towards the end of the century and even into today, was electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. ECT is typically a last resort, or a plan Z, when all other avenues have failed. If a patient is unresponsive to all other treatments, a doctor may suggest ECT, which sends high doses of electricity into targeted areas of the brain. Today, ECT is very safe, but there are always possible side effects such as confusion, memory loss, nausea, headaches, and other physical symptoms, and medical complications in relation to the anesthesia used. Now we move on to the highly controversial eugenics. Eugenics began in 1883, but during its height around the mid-1900s, forced sterilization came into practice. As mental illnesses were seen as impure, patients were a target group of eugenicists. Operations such as castration, hysterectomies, and clitoridectomies would remove parts of the sexual organ to prevent future production of children, theoretically putting an end to mental illness. Luckily, eugenics fizzled out from mainstream society around 1945 after the Nuremberg trials, as many realized the ideals of Nazis were supported by eugenics. As for the development of drugs used to treat patients during the 20th century, many were sedatives and in the early stages of experimenting. 
drugs such as lithium bromides and barbiturates were the main choice for doctors in the first half of the century. Towards the end of the century, names known today such as Valium, Prozac, and Lexapro began to be developed. As of today, there are thousands of medication options for those who choose to use them, as well as more accessible therapy options. Mental illnesses are still stigmatized, especially those that are stereotyped as violent, such as schizophrenia, but we have come a long way. What the future holds is yet to be known, and while many mental illnesses cannot be prevented, they can become easier to live with and manage through the use of modern treatments. Since 12, I've gone to therapy to treat my depression, as well as other diagnoses, and I've been on medication since about 15. I encourage anyone who is struggling to seek out help, as I wouldn't be here today without the help of my therapist and psychiatrist, as well as my family and friends. Some tips I have. If you don't connect with your therapist, it's okay to look for another. I didn't connect with my first one. They're there to help you, so pick whoever helps you the best. Another thing is if you choose medication, don't give up if the first doesn't work. I tried three different combinations until I found what worked best for me. Every brain is different, and what works for one person isn't guaranteed to work for the next. So don't be afraid to tell your psychiatrist if a medication isn't working for you. That's all we have today on Chirpcast. Make sure to check out our latest article where we break down myths on self-harm and offer healthy alternatives. And visit our resource page if you're going through a hard time. I hope you have a good rest of your day as we all work towards a beautiful mind.